everyone. This is Jeffrey Wu with the HVMN Health via Modern Nutrition Podcast. And I'm really excited to bring back one of our OG guests. And I, like OG, not in just terms of the length of the HVMN Podcast program, but just really one of the original thinkers and thought leaders within the whole space of low-carb ketogenic diet. Super excited to welcome back best-selling author Gary Tubbs. Great to see you again. Uh, thank you for having me. So... You came out with a new book, Case for Keto. It's made some splash with book reviews and all of that. And I think making a little bit of splash in nutrition Twitter, maybe just top of uh, the program here, just to set context and frame. This is not a new topic for you. You've been speaking about this, researching the space for literally decades, good calorie, bad calories, you know, a very poignant argument, the case against sugar, the case for keto. What instigated this new effort? Talk us through the thought process in this latest endeavor. Okay. Well, this actually started as a science writing friend of mine saying, you know, Gary, nobody really cares about the science here. They just want to know what to eat. So you have to write your version of Michael Pollan's food rules. This is a science writer who studied science journalism with Michael Pollan at Berkeley and used to babysit for his kids. So she was very in tune with it. And she convinced me that if I write a book that's just food rules, that that book will sell and it would be easy and I could move the arguments forward and give people what we wanted. And I pitched to my agent who liked it and we pitched it to the editor who liked it. And uh, then I decided I couldn't write that book because it bored me. Every two weeks, there's a new book coming out, a ketogenic a diet guide. Most of them are pretty good. And I have a lot of these people sending me these books to get endorsements while I'm writing my own. So I decided what I wanted to do was first clarify a lot of the um, misconceptions out there. And they're numerous. First of all, who's right? Okay. So everyone does their own research. They come to different conclusions. I, of course, think I'm right. Other people come along after me and they think I'm partly right. And then you end up with a whole world of different opinions. And then uh, the world has changed dramatically even since my first book or my second book, Why We Get Fat, which was eight years ago. When I wrote that, I had a chapter at the end of it that was in effect what most of the case for keto is. And I interviewed the half dozen physicians I knew who were prescribing low-carb, high-fat ketogenic diets to their patients to, um, in effect, fix their metabolic uh, disruption, the obesity and diabetes and hypertension that they suffered from. So there were half a dozen of them I knew in 2010, 11. There now, I my estimate is there's a few tens of thousands, at least worldwide. There's a Facebook group in Canada of women physicians who eat low-carb, high-fat ketogenic diets and prescribe them to their patients. And there's 4,000 members on the Facebook group. And there's only 40,000 women physicians in Canada, according to Google. So that's, uh, you know, one in every 10 women physicians is now sort of buying into what I've been arguing and others like David Ludwig and Eric Westman and Jason Fung and so I wanted to catch up on what they had learned. That's an enormous amount of clinical experience. And it's still clinical experience is another version of anecdotal experience. It can give you a lot of information. You can't overinterpret it. But I wanted to understand what they were seeing, what they were learning about how their patients were dealing with it. So these are primarily family medicine physicians, internal medicine physicians whose waiting rooms are full of people suffering from 
some version of metabolic syndrome, basically. That was that was ultimately the book I wrote. It's the first half is clarifying misconceptions. And one of the biggest misconceptions is a simple one is like, why are these diets like keto so popular? You know, and the medical community writes them off as fad diets and they say, you know, anything and once you get that fad diet term the, the whole game is over, right? There's nothing, they, you can never be taken seriously again. And my revelation, silly as it is, is that the reason fad diets are so popular, right, is because the conventional wisdom doesn't work for some to most to maybe all people. So you have an obesity and diabetes epidemic. It means every year we have more and more obese and diabetic individuals who at some point in their life try to prevent the development of these disorders by doing what their physicians tell them to do, you know, eat less, exercise more, eat mostly plant diets, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and it fails them for whatever reason, and we could discuss that. And once it fails them, they're going to go looking for alternatives. And by definition, the alternatives are fad diets. And if they get to, you know, keto low-carb, high-fat diets, and it works for them, by which I mean they you know, can put their obesity and diabetes into remission and not have to live with the life of hunger, they're going to sustain it. And they're going to be probably zealous about it because anyone who fixes a, you know, an intractable chronic disorder by diet tends to be zealous. So this is the kind of thinking and the kind of ideas I wanted to get across, beginning with this idea that the reason people like me are advocating for low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic diets is because the conventional wisdom is a disaster and it just doesn't help. So, yeah, I, I think this notion of fad diet is interesting because, you know, what is your prognostication on keto? And I, I get asked that question a lot myself, which is, you know, is keto a fad diet? Is it going to stick around? I mean, I think the physiology to metabolism suggests that the shift from carbohydrate calories to fat and ketone calories seems to be a real phenomenon. I think it's going to be something that happens if we can sustain and not be chronically a diseased population. But maybe the, the name and the term changes, right? Like people talk about being keto lights. There's, I think, in you know, the keto diet really is like a the kind of a form of an Atkins diet. So my sense is that their underlying physiology is there. And I don't, I'm, I'm pretty agnostic on the exact terminology or the, uh, or the name for it. What is your sense there? You know, is keto going to be the term that we all use or is it going to be like the Taubes diet or the, you know, whatever diet? It's going to, I'm sure it's going to shift again. As long as it stays on the outside of conventional medicine, uh, it's probably going to keep taking on new terms. Uh, the way I refer to it, I, I say, you know, when I was young, keto was called Atkins. It just, I'm, I'm amazed that people think can argue that it's significantly different. And then I, I read, uh, I was just reading a website the other day where, you, well, keto has its origins in neurological studies of epilepsy. But if you actually read the original research by uh, Wilder at uh, Mayo Clinic on epilepsy, he decided to try the ketogenic diet for epilepsy because it was being used so successfully in his clinic for type 2 diabetes. So it's sort of, it's always, it's, and it's always the same thing. It's just so pre-insulin, the conventional, the standard of care in diabetes was what they call the animal diet, which was fatty meat, fish, and fowl, and, and green leafy vegetables that you actually boiled three times to minimize the carbohydrate content of them. And that could keep what we now call type 2 diabetics alive indefinitely, and it could extend the life of people with type 1 diabetes. It 
didn't have that terminology then, but they understood there were two different disease states for the most part. You know, then it becomes the Taller diet, calories don't count, and there's a Pennington diet phase, and and then it becomes Atkins, and then it becomes protein power and sugar busters, and and the zone uses the exact same theoretical underpinning, but pushes up the carb content for reasons that still mystify me. You know, and then when I came along in 2002 and sort of opened the conversation up again about Atkins itself in this infamous New York Times Magazine story, then you know, it's Atkins for a while. And then it was sometime around, you know, five, 10 years ago, it became keto. I don't even, I was just thinking I should really understand that since I've written a book, you know, somewhere buried in, in, in Google news is the first time people start there. Maybe it's the Reddit community that starts calling it keto. I'm sure somebody's going to hear this and, you know, have the answer for me, but that's, it's always the same thing. It's, it's extreme carbohydrate restriction where you replace those calories by fat. Yep. I mean, to me, it's like a proper physiological term, right? Being ketogenic means that your body produces ketones, which implies carbohydrate restriction. So to me, it's like it's like a reasonable name, given that it is like descriptive of the physiological mechanism of ketosis. Yeah, the only issue is, you know, in my in this book, despite the title, The Case for Keto, I, I refer to it as low-carb, high-fat slash ketogenic eating. <laughs> And then I admit that that's not going to trip. That's not in danger of becoming the common terminology because um, it's so catchy. When I talk to these physicians, this was the interesting thing. The physicians, when they were treating their patients, and this is, again, I interviewed over 120 for this one book. They didn't care about ketones. They didn't have their patients, maybe two exceptions out of 120. They wanted to get their patients off carb-rich foods. So they're feeling you get them off sugar, flour, grains, starchy vegetables, they'll be healthy. And to do that, I got to convince them that dietary fat is not going to kill them. So that's a challenge because we've been programmed for the past 50 years to fear butter and bacon and things like that. So I got to get them off of that. And if I can get those two things accomplished, they'll replace the carbs with fat and they'll get healthy. And then you can watch them get healthy. You don't need any sort of theory about how this is going to prevent heart disease or minimize their cancer risk in the future. You can actually watch them get healthier. That's the only, So the only time they ever measured ketones, for the most part, is if the patient said they were adhering to the dietary advice and the doctor couldn't find any way, really obvious way that they were confused. So it did seem like they were actually you know, abstaining from carb-rich foods. And then they, you could actually measure ketones to see if they're getting the metabolic response you would expect. And if they're not, then you start looking for where, you know, where the carbs are sneaking into their diet. Hey guys, this is Jeff Wu interrupting my podcast for a special offer, a special announcement for you. As you might know, HVMN just launched the new Keto Food Bar and they're yummy, they're delicious. And I want to make a special personal offer for you to give you a discount to get those into your hands. So for a limited time only, use the discount code JEFF10. That's G-E-O-F-F number one, number zero, Jeff 10 for a 10% discount on the Keto Food Bar on HVMN.com. We got Mexican hot chocolate, one of my personal favorites. We got vanilla shortbread, we got chocolate chunk, and of course, we got the everything bagel, which is legit savory, garlicky, oniony. And these have become staples in my own personal life. I like to eat this with a cup of coffee for breakfast, 
I've been using the Mexican hot chocolate, the vanilla as grab and go bars when I'm biking when I'm out on the town, when it's not easy for me to eat healthy, eat keto. So these are certified organic. They actually are yummy. They aren't these weird synthetic artificial tasting bars you might see that are keto compliant, but have a bunch of fake IMOs and things that actually spike glycemic response. And of course, while they're also certified organic and they actually taste good, these have been tested on continuous glucose monitors. So they actually have flat glycemic response on your blood sugar. So essentially it's a, a fasting mimetic, but we're still delivering almost 300 calories of healthy fat and 12 grams of healthy protein and grass-fed collagen. These are legit. I'm so excited for you to try them and use my personal discount code, Jeff10, to get a special 10% discount. So check it out and enjoy and back to the program. I, I'd love to just, you know, later in the conversation, talk about where the benefit of a low-carb ketogenic diet comes from. Is it from the carb restriction itself? Is there some signaling effect of ketones for some of the longevity pathways or anti-inflammatory pathways? It's a combination of both. I think that's somewhat of an open scientific question. But before going on to that topic, I want to just bring back to why you're so controversial in the nutrition community. It feels like every time you have a book out there, a lot of researchers like kind of dunking or slamming or critiquing and, and picking it apart. Is it because you're speaking truth? Is it because you're wrong? Like, what do you make? I mean, like at this point, you have a thick skin, right? Like this is not the first time you had this rodeo. Yeah, it's not as thick as it should be. First of all, I don't think I question whether it's a lot of people. I would say of the nutrition, obesity research community, 95% of them are so buried in their work that they don't, they may not even know who I am. Okay. Um, despite, you know, they, if I, they might vaguely, they would vaguely remember this New York Times Magazine article and assume that some, whatever I said was quackish. You know, if I pointed out the sugar story, they might go, yeah, I remember seeing that cover. It's one reason why I'm always trying to get into the New York Times Magazine because people remember that. Of the, let's say 5% who pay attention, I would say we have no idea what percentage buy into it. You know, I, I have allies now, very well influential researchers who I got endorsements for in this book because I wanted to make the point that they're very smart, very well-respected people or experts in this field who think that the arguments in my books are most likely right. Not even, you know, not maybe right, but most likely right. And then there are a few people who just, you know, I could write a book about saying two plus two is four and they're going to write. Uh, blog posts and review the book and say I'm an idiot. And they're always the same people. And they have fans. So their fans think I'm an idiot. And these are, and nothing I say can change that. So I could even, you know, I was recently on Twitter getting an argument about the value of endorsements from well respected scientists. And the comment from one of these people was, well, you know, we're supposed to believe it because they do. And my argument was, is, no, of course not. It's like any endorsement. It's a, it, it increases your credibility and says maybe you should buy into this because this smart person or this best-selling author believed it. So even something like that can be misconstrued. If once somebody doesn't like your argument and thinks you're a provocateur or thinks uh, you know, the fundamental issue is if you're right, they're wrong. And nobody, I was just 
Jeez, let me see if I, I just had a quote from uh, Tolstoy, who said, I know that most men, including those at ease with problems of the greatest complexity, can seldom accept even the simplest and most obvious truth if it be such as would oblige them to admit the falsity of conclusions which they have delighted in explaining to colleagues, which they have proudly taught to others, and which they have woven thread by thread into the fabric of their lives. So, you know, the fact is I'm a journalist arguing that the scientific community got it wrong. I'm not just on a trivial point, but on arguably the most important questions in chronic disease. It would be crazy if a significant number of them did not think I was a quack and a provocateur and, you know, seriously object to my presence in the field. And part of what I've had to do for the past 20 years is, you know, Everything I write and everything I do has always been aimed at remaining credible to the great bulk of the community so that they would remain open to the possibility that they should take seriously the kind of things that I'm saying. And while I've been doing it and others like David Ludwig and Eric Westman and Jason Fung and Nina Teichholz and Tim Noakes and we could go on and on, more and more people are getting behind us because clearly, if nothing else, eating this way makes people healthy which is like the sort of ace in our sleeve. No matter what they think about our thinking, they have to then say, well, Taubes is wrong about mechanism or he's this idiotic idea he has that energy balances nonsense. You know, he's just an, an idiot. But yeah, I think you should eat a ketogenic diet because you'll lose weight without hunger and be healthier. Yeah, I think that's like an interesting point because I think just from uh, the animal test, right? Like people are doing this out of their own volition and they're seeing reasonable results. There's clearly some signal here, right? Like we've seen the growth of our community, uh, just the interest in keto, just from like the metrics. So clearly something is resonating. And I think I'm I'm pretty open free market competition type of person. If this like just didn't work, people wouldn't like do this because like they have a choice of what they want to eat. And it's like not necessarily the easy thing to do to eat ketogenic within a very, very hyper industrialized food environment. For every single observation, there's a different way to perceive it, a different explanation for that observation that fits either paradigm. So in this case, the community has convinced itself over the years that, well, okay, the reason people like ketogenic diets is because you get this quick weight loss in the beginning. And that inspires them. So you lose water weight and you think, hey, it's working. And then you continue doing it. But if you continue doing any diet that restricts app that restricts the calories you consume, you'll lose weight. So the benefits from keto are, you know, first a sort of delusional uh, mechanism that 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 fools you into keeping going, and then any benefits you get, you would get from any diet as long as you restrict calories. So they're not impressed by what impresses us because they have an explanation. It requires thinking, a that people are we're all, for lack of a better word, stupid enough to buy into the water loss. And in all honesty, I was 30 years ago when I first tried a different dietary therapy. <laughs> Never cried, didn't know enough about it. And then uh, be that, you know, if we if we st stuck with any dietary therapy, so that one of the, the phrases you hear often in this community, it's constantly repeated and believed by, uh, it's hard to find a, an article on dietary therapy that doesn't end with this, which is a diet that works is a diet you'll stick with. So, which really, I mean, is, is, is so nonsensical, I can't even begin to describe, but that's how they believe. If you stick with the diet, any diet will work, 
which I guess they're defining as we'll get you to lose weight if you sustain it. And then if you say things to these people, well, like I sustained the low fat diet through the 90s and I was gaining two pounds a year and clearly becoming more and more insulin resistant. Does that mean that diet worked because I sustained it? And then I got off it when I experimented with, you know, what we were then calling Atkins and now calling keto because that way I lost 25 pounds in six weeks and been able to maintain a healthy weight ever since without ever being hungry because I can eat to satiety. So that's a different way of defining what the working diet is. But there's an explanation for everything. Any point I make or we make, they will have an explanation for that sounds reasonable to them. And I would argue is reasonable as long as you don't think too deeply about it, which means give it more than about 10 or 15 seconds of non-critical thought. Right. So this is where science shines in the sense that we can construct a randomized controlled trial to test these different models and see which model has a better predictive ability, right? Like that is canonical scientific method. So maybe to just lay out the landscape, I think the kind of layman's description of what I understand to be your core premise is that like this obesity, chronic disease thing, this is not a calorie problem, it's a hormonal problem, right? I think it's a very succinct, nice way to encapsulate the more formal definition is the carbohydrate insulin model versus what I, can, I guess a more thermodynamics kind of calories in, calories out model. Would you maybe for our audience here, just like frame up the two competing models and then from there, what is the superior or, you know, what are the predictions that these models would diverge on and what does the data suggest to help justify either case? Okay, remember what the data suggests are always what the data suggests to me because they're going to suggest something entirely else to the people who believe the opposite. So the conventional thinking on obesity is it's an energy balance problem. So one way or the other, we consume more energy than we expend and some percentage of the excess is stored as fat and accumulates as fat. And that's what causes obesity. And within that energy balance model, you could find all kinds of different theories on obesity, but you could always know that there are, there are an energy balance theory if ultimately whatever the mechanism is, it's working to increase intake or decrease expenditure, and that's what drives fat accumulation. So I was uh, speaking with a diabetes researcher yesterday in Miami, been in the field since the 60s, and he wanted to know what I thought about gut. I was talking about the effect of different hormones on fat accumulation, and he said, and what about gut hormones? And I said, well, no, gut hormones, when we talk about them, are basically an energy balance model, because the assumption is that the gut is somehow signaling the brain how much food to eat. And if it's the signaling is in, into the brain in any way determining food intake, hunger, satiety. If it's about uh, energy expenditure in some form, then it's an energy balance model. And the fat tissue is, is somehow passively responding to this excess caloric intake, over, uh, calories in greater than calories out. The alternative and both these hypotheses, I say, have their roots in the early 20th century German science. Back when the German medical research was the best in the world, there were obesity and diet schools of obesity and diabetes researchers who were thinking about this. At the time, one of the few things that nutritionists could measure was the caloric content of foods. And when they developed calorimeters in the late 1860s in Germany that allowed them to measure the caloric expenditure of humans or large animals, they could now start talking in terms of the calories going in versus the calories being expended. And this led to a theory that that's what 
caused obesity. And this was a period when thermodynamics was one of the great advances in physics and the high energy, the theoretical physicists were talking about energy. So energy was on everybody's mind. This is a book, by the way, that I would like to write just on this history. The counter argument was, look, it's clearly a hormonal disorder. Okay, we know that there are all kinds of different ways that hormones affect fat accumulation. You know, men and women fatten differently. So the fat accumulation in a, in a man is determined by sex hormones. The fat accumulation in a woman is determined by sex hormones. It's almost independent of how much they're eating. So if, if where you get fat and when you get fat is determined by hormones, why would you assume that the excess fat accumulation is determined by anything else. And there was a belief system. The other way of looking at obese people, one way was that it's, you know, gluttony and sloth, kind of the Falstaff model from Shakespeare of, you know, these fat people eat, you know, they're gluttons. That's all you have to know. That's an energy balance way of thinking. And the other way of thinking is that you know, some people just struggle with their weight, regardless of how much they eat. And there's a line from a George Bernard Shaw play where, you know, one of the characters says, you know, some people just get fat regardless. It doesn't matter how much they eat. You know, they just struggle with, and we all knew people like this. Like when we were young, we knew we're either lean and we can eat anything, or we tend to gain weight and we have to watch what or how much we eat. And we had friends who were overweight and obese, and it was clear that that's just what their bodies did with the food they ate. And when I was a kid, and there were you know one or two obese kids in every high school, we never thought of them as people who ate too much. They were just different, right? They just accumulated fat, and we didn't. So those are the two competing hypotheses. The link to diet in the second hypothesis goes through insulin. So insulin, this was worked out by the 1960s, insulin dominates the fuel part, what's called fuel partitioning in, in, in the body. So how you're going to use carbohydrates, protein, and fats are all orchestrated by insulin. And one thing they does you know, what does is controls blood sugar. So it upregulates the intake of glucose into lean tissue. But in order to keep blood sugar controlled, it also tells fat tissue to store fat. So when insulin goes up, you store fat. When insulin comes down, you mobilize it and burn it. And the hypothesis, it's, it, it, this is textbook medicine. You know, there's nothing mysterious about it. You don't need, it's not genomics and proteomics and a lot of fancy words. It was worked out in the 60s. It's in every, virtually every textbook. It's just considered irrelevant to obesity. So the hypothesis is carbohydrates are fattening because they stimulate insulin secretion. Dietary fat weirdly enough, doesn't. You can store and mobilize. So that's a carbohydrate insulin model within this hormonal regulation model. So people could be uh, have struggle with their weight for all kinds of hormonal reasons other than carbohydrates and insulin. But if they want to try and fix it through diet, you've got to lower insulin to get fat out of your fat tissue. And then there's good science showing that it's a threshold effect, which means it's kind of like a switch. Your fat holds on to fat calories when insulin is elevated, but if it gets below a very low level, it kind of dumps them into the bloodstream and then the rest of your body can burn it for fuel. And then you get to keto land, basically. Keto is when you're below that threshold. Yep. So it feels like, especially within the last year or two, there are more and more researchers trying to test and create different predictions on the carbohydrate insulin model. And there's been a couple of researchers, we won't necessarily need to name names, who claim that they've debunked the carbohydrate insulin model. So if some of these experiments with, you know, low fat diets that also didn't seem to stimulate insulin, 
some of those lines of reasoning? What is a steel man argument for them? And then where does, you know, how would you respond given your perspective and in, 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 in your data points? Well, so this is, and we should paraphrase it. We're having this conversation, right? The week after one of these papers just came out and it's a, a research team at the National Institutes of Health. And I'm amazed that suddenly in this field, if somebody's at the NIH or in the government and they do work that agrees with your belief system, you suddenly think there's no better researchers in the world than government researchers. And if <laughs> when, <laughs> we tend to spend the rest of our life thinking otherwise about you know, bureaucrats and uh, G14s. So as you put it, the goal of science, right, if you've got competing uh, hypotheses, and you've always got competing hypotheses to explain what you see in the studies, the goal of science is to design a study that tests the competing hypotheses so they each make a, would make a different prediction. And in some level, this is going to happen in all science. I should say when the reason I got into this nutrition field is my first two books were about researchers who discovered non-existent fundamental particles, first in high energy physics, well, fundamental phenomena, first in high energy physics, and then in nuclear physics and chemistry. So I was obsessed with good science and bad science. And it's a sort of a constant iteration towards truth. So you think of an experiment that'll test a hypothesis, and then you do the experiment, there are multiple explanations for what you see. So ideally, you present your results and the research community looks at the results and says, well, this is really interesting, but did you think of this? And did you think of that? And maybe this is what's happening and not that. And then you generate, you, you digest those criticisms and you think, well, if we do this experiment, that should take care of that criticism. And if we do that experiment, that should take care of that experiment. So we can do the next iteration and we get closer and closer to truth. Eventually, ideally, you'll get to a point where nobody has a criticism anymore, where nobody you know can think of, nobody in the community can think of a valid criticism. None of that happens in nutrition and obesity research. So people do an experiment, and I'm particularly, and then they post it on Twitter or Instagram, and then people tell them what a landmark brilliant experiment is, and if they have good connections to newspaper reporters, the reporters write it up, and they find somebody to say this is a landmark experiment. I mean, it's more landmark experiments have been published in obesity in the past five years than in the hundred years previously. Criticisms are considered the sort of last act of a desperate man trying to save his theory. So you don't have to take them seriously. So you don't have to talk to the researchers who are proposing a different theory to really get their prediction for what they should see under the experimental situation. Because you want to design the study in such a way that both hypotheses make clear predictions. Only one of them ideally will be, will you know, maybe neither of them will describe what happened, but ideally one will and the other won't. So you don't talk to the other researchers, the proponents of the other hypothesis first, because you don't like them, because they believe something different than you do. And if they're right, you're wrong. And we can't accept that. So, and then when they criticize it after the fact, you say, well, you're only saying that because you didn't like the results. So you end up with this kind of, and then Twitter, of course, makes everything you know, ratchets up the level of vitriol almost unavoidably. So that's the kind of situation we get. And when I co-founded this not-for-profit, NUSI, back in 2011 with uh, Dr. Peter Atia, we wanted to fund studies that could test these competing hypotheses. So we funded a pilot study, which is a collaboration of four experiments and another trial that was one group at Harvard, and they came out with different results. 
So one of them, the one at Harvard, which are David Ludwig's experiment, David believes the carbohydrate insulin model and his findings supported it. Uh, the other group was believers of the energy balance model. And Kevin Hall, I don't actually know what he believes or not. It's very hard ever to get him to state it. He'll just say he's a scientist and he doesn't have a belief. But scientists do believe without uh, a baseline preconception, you don't do the research. Anyway, they showed different experiments. And then uh, since then, uh, Ludwig has done other experiments that have confirmed the model. And Kevin Hall at NIH has done other experiments, which he says refutes the model. We keep going back and forth. There are other experiments that are done that are so in order to determine which of these are right, it, it, you could think of the simplest way to imagine this hypothesis is per calorie consumed, carbohydrates are fattening. And dietary fat in the absence of carbohydrates is not. So in order to determine whether this is true, the conventional wisdom is it's all about calories. There's no per calorie consumed thing. Thousand calories of carbs is just as fattening as a thousand calories of protein or a thousand calories of fat. If you get fat, you just eat too much of it. So the question then becomes, how do you test a hypothesis that requires that you fix the calories consumed? so that you could then study the effect of the macronutrients independent of that, of calories. That's sort of eighth grade mathematics. And to do that, you have to rig, you have to feed the subjects. You have to assure that they eat everything they're fed. You have to make sure they don't eat anything they're not fed. And then you have to set up the experiment in such a way that it lasts long enough that uh, you know the results are meaningful and believable. And then some of these experiments try to do that. Some don't even try. The experiment that came out last week was a two-week experiment and without bothering to fix calories. The assumption was you could learn something meaningful about these two approaches by just letting people eat as much as they wanted of a low-carb, high-fat ketogenic diet or as much as they wanted of a very low-fat vegan diet. And somehow, how much they ate would tell you which hypothesis was true or not. And this was published as something that refuted the prediction of the carbohydrate insulin model. And those of us who promote the carbohydrate insulin model said there's, it doesn't make a prediction under those circumstances. Right. Because the time horizon is too short in terms of just like proper keto adaptation or. Well, the time horizon is too short. So two weeks is too short. And so the in the long term, the prediction with a diet that's sufficient, so what the low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic diet does, in my interpretation, is it just maximally lowers insulin. So when your insulin's low, you mobilize fat and you burn it, and if you have excess fat stored, you will mobilize that and burn it. There's no law of nature that says you can't increase your how much fuel you burn, your ex energy expenditure every day if the fuel supplied to your cells increases. So over a long period of time, you expect people to lose weight on this diet, which they always do. That's why the keto diet sticks around. It's a weight loss diet. And it's a weight loss diet even when people get to eat as much as they like. So the prediction is over a long period of time, they're going to lose weight. Are they going to eat less? That's one question. Are they going to eat more or less than a low-fat, 10% fat vegan diet? So on one diet, you're giving people eggs and bacon and steak and chicken and butter and <laughs> bacon. On another diet, they're eating you know, hummus sandwiches and bean sprouts. I have no idea what they're going to do on the other diet, right? 
So for two weeks, I could imagine they're going to look at this diet and think this is a generically healthy diet. I'm going to eat less of it because it's an opportunity to be healthy. And I'm the, the last thing I want to do is overeat my hummus sandwich. So I can't, they, you can make no prediction about what the keto Atkins diet is going to do compared to that because we have no idea what those people are going to do. I could begin to I have ideas what will happen to them over a long term, but I have no idea what will happen to them over two weeks. The researcher who does these studies thinks you can give them cognitive tests, you know, surveys that are designed to measure things like hunger and palatability. And when you do that, they'll tell you they're no hungrier on this on one diet than the other and that they like the hummus bread dinner as much as they would like a steak salad dinner. And that might be true. I tend to believe it more if this research was done in Northern California, where we are, than, <laughs> than in Washington, you know, but the suburbs of Washington, D.C. But it's, again, it might be true, but I don't, uh, the only way to know for sure is to do a longer study. Yep. And I think that's like a fair critique. And I don't think you're out of line for bringing up those concerns, because I think for two weeks, you can starve people for two weeks and they're going to have more, and it's, it's not clear that like a 10% vegan or 10% fat vegan diet is actually sustainable or nutritionally complete in the long term, right? It is a very, very constrained exercise. It's, it's a very strange study. I probably wouldn't have said anything, but that for some reason, well, the studies get published in the Nature Medicine, which is a very good journal, which again, mystifies me. But when you submit a study for publication and it confirms general belief systems, especially on a controversial issue. So journals like to publish articles that say quacks are wrong and you can't blame them. Um, I'm all for it, depending on how you define a quack. And then you could suggest reviewers. So, and the reviewers, you know, the journal knows that if they pick people who believe the quacks, those people are going to like going to criticize the article and say it shouldn't be published. So it's a very tricky matter when you publish these kind of studies. And then, you know, if you have friendly journalists or lazy journalists out there, they're going to write it up because it was in Nature Medicine. It's about diet. The article's about diet always. And there's the nutrition world has been dogged by lazy journalism from the get-go. You know, they really, I hate to say it, but the really, just like in, in you know, your high school class, the smartest people in your high school class, you know, they go, like when I was younger, they went into physics or they went to Wall Street or they became doctors. Now they go to Silicon Valley or they, they don't become nutrition writers, <laughs> you know, just kind of in general and making it unbi. you know, they're not that the people who do aren't nice, perfectly nice people, but they tend not to get this level of intellect that you would ideally want in the field. And then the best, the investigative journalists, the ones who really dig in, who do their homework, who ask questions and, and question um, conventional wisdom, they tend to be in other fields. And today they're writing about COVID. They're not writing about, you know, a keto diet versus a vegan diet at two weeks at NIH. Yeah. And I think to compound on that point, I mean, having gone through the peer review process, we actually had a paper published under refereed looking at ketones and post exercise recovery. I think a lot of lay folks just fail to realize so much politics in academia. I, mean, I would argue that the like the politics, the relationships, who, how do you choose your reviewers, which editors are favorable? That's a that is a very competitive, cutthroat industry that seems from the outside to be fair, unbiased. We're scientists. We're ivory tower. We're we're pure, and it's scientists are people too. And I think 
people need to realize that it's everyone's a person. Everyone has going to have some bias and we shouldn't pretend that a certain type of human based on their job title is more of a purist or a pure human than everyone else. I think it's like very institutional arrogance in, in my opinion. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's crazy field we live in because one of the issues, right, is we're all aware of there's a replication crisis in science, right? So that was getting a lot of publicity the last few years. And the replication crisis is some unacceptably large, perhaps well more than half of all scientific research is irreproducible. It's the, either the study is, uh, was poorly done and poorly interpreted, or they just got the wrong answer. They had some bias that influenced what they did or they did, you know, again, and this is on one level, I, it's just the nature of science, right? If what you're doing is important, Ideally, people will point out all the ways that you might have screwed up, and then you'll do it again and do it again and do it again. But this isn't how research is funded in America, maybe around the world. It's not very few people work in a field where they do iterations on the same. If you're doing iterations on the same experiment over and over again, the idea is you're just, I don't know. I, I'm going to pay you for that. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody's going to publish. They're going to say, didn't you just publish this three months ago, the same experiment? And you say, yeah, but I realize what was wrong with that one. And this one addresses that. Now this one's right. And I want to get this one out so people could criticize it. All of that aspect of science is gone. And instead, what you've got is people, I don't know. I mean, the fields I know best, nutrition and obesity research are very distressing to me. But they would say, remember, there's always a different perspective. They would say it's distressing to me because I'm a quack and they don't agree with me. You know, it's one of the things I find uh, when we started the Nutrition Science Initiative, we called it the Nutrition Science Initiative because the idea was to bring the kind of rigors of the sciences in which I grew up and my colleague grew up, you know, physics, to nutrition science and do the prop, you know, the kinds of experiments that could really represent a signal out there instead of just generating more noise. And what we did was created a few sort of Frankenstein monsters that from our perspective do worse science than ever and get more publicity for doing it because, you know, and from the alternative perspective of, I don't like those studies because they show that I'm wrong. Yeah. But I think I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic in terms of just the decentralization of information, right? Like you're already seeing this with, I think, just in recent news, the Wall Street bets versus hedge funds. You see just like, and I think you see that already with politics. You're going to see that with science where everyone has access to the PubMed journals. People are demanding access to the raw data. People are running their own self-experiments with continuous glucose monitors. So I think that this is, a, this is, a, this is like a Pandora's box of decentralization that you cannot pack back in. I think conversations like this, where you have a direct platform, you can publish your own books, you don't need to go through a refereed kind of process that's potentially biased against your perspective, which is like, oftentimes, again, if you look at the history of science, I know you're, you're a historian in terms of how you look at a lot of your research, right? Like almost every single paradigm shifting change, whether it's from astronomy to physics was basically a heretic in, in their time. And I think it's like, why are we so arrogant today to think that we're all right on every single paradigm? I think it's, again, very anti-scientific to shut down people's voices, especially when I think it's like, you're, it, I think it's in good faith. I don't think you're just trolling this to make a buck, right? Like there's not even like that much money to like push one guy or the other, right? Like you don't own like 
the fat company, right? Like go to Twitter and then, well, again, I mean, Twitter is like everyone gets a voice. That's the democratization of it. And people who really like even their family can't stand listening to them anymore can now, you know, get on Twitter and get 5,000 followers or 500 followers or 12 followers and still insult you on your Twitter feed. And invariably, there's someone out there telling me I'm only doing this because I'm selling books. And it's, you know, well, oh, the people who hate me are also selling books. So what difference does it make anyway? And as you point out, it's a lousy living. Although, let's give the flip side of that, I didn't realize quite how bad, well, you know, when I started. The reality is... Well, there's two arguments here. One is, are carbohydrates fattening and should we restrict them? That's the simplest way to think about keto. Like for some, you know, for some of us who struggle with our weight and our blood sugar, or maybe we want to be, you know, ideal physical performance, whatever it is, what we do best if we abstain from eating these carbohydrate-rich foods and replace those calories with fat. The other argument is we got to understand the mechanism because there are a lot of people who are never going to benefit. And the mechanism, the conventional wisdom in the obesity research community is still obesity is an eating disorder. It's an energy in, energy out, energy balance disorder. So the way we fix it is by trying to figure out how to get people to eat less as opposed to addressing whatever the hormonal dysregulation is in the periphery that's causing them to store too much fat. So again, just because I've been spending too much time on Twitter the past week, I see a lot of people saying, well, yeah, Taub's might, you know, sure, ketogenic diets work, but Taub's is wrong about the mechanism, which could be true. And sure. But the question is, what is the mechanism? Because if we don't understand that mechanism, we'll never maximize our understanding in any other disease epidemic, right? Whether it's COVID or Ebola or yellow fever or cholera, you know, the research community is absolutely fundamentally dedicated to making sure that they have the agent and mechanism of the disease understood. And here it's still, well, fat people eat too much and the environment makes it too hard for them to say no. That's crazy in my mind that's crazy yeah so is there i i I know obviously with your work through nusi and your collaborators like david ludwig who are running these experiments is there like the idealized gold standard like if you could just like be emperor of the science world and have a thousand human guinea pigs do whatever you want is there that experiment that would be like hey this is like a very very good pure test uh, if I had infinite resources, I would love to run this, right? Like, I'm just thinking here, like a, a very interesting, like Mickey Mouse experiment would be hold protein the same and, and hold, hold the same multivitamins in terms of two cohorts and let someone eat like olive oil versus like sugar for the remaining calories, <laughs> ad libidum, <laughs> right? And then see what happens, right? Obviously, a lot of critiques, that's not ecological. No one's going to want to just eat olive oil and, and steak or, or protein versus like sugar and protein. But I think that would be a very extreme polarizing experiment to run to, to really focus on the carbohydrate insulin model, where obviously a very different hormonal response, but very much the same exact calories in input. Obviously, that's like a Mickey Mouse experiment where you could critique that a lot. But I'm curious in your mind, it, it, do you have like the ideal experiment to help answer this question and knowing that human studies at this form is so expensive and so hard to actually run well. 
Yeah. And I, as you were saying that, all I could think of was you have to, you know, don't try this at home. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. It's, is there an idea? There's an ideal experiment that, to answer a lot of different questions. So the, I always, I think of the experiments as asking a specific question and that's the only answer you get. And then you're not sure that answer is right, but you don't get any answer. And so for instance, with this study that was just published from NIH and we were saying, you know, two weeks isn't enough. Well, first of all, they're not fixing what they're eating. They're letting people eat ad libitum as much as they want. And then they're insisting that somehow their psychological response to the foods offered is having no effect on how much they're eating or their the palatability of the foods offered is is equal because that's what the measurements show and two weeks is enough time to determine what's going to happen for the rest of your life on these two diets. And so you could fix that study just by doing it for six months. And if you saw the exact same thing at six months and you saw it two weeks, then I'm beginning to willing to believe that this is a long-term effect and that so if you ask the question is two weeks long enough, that's a always a valid question. Anybody who answers that it's not and discussing a chronic disease is, is got some cognitive issues that they need to see their therapist about. So do do a longer study. Do it better. This is a, the obligation of the scientists is to do the best possible study. If at any point you say, well, I can't afford that or they won't fund that, then your obligation is to figure out how to afford it. Because you want to answer these questions yourself. If you don't want to answer these questions yourself, you're not curious enough to be doing real science. Or, or scope the claim, right? Because I think that the claim was that, oh, this debunked it's this, the carbohydrate insulin model, but it's like maybe in a, in a short time period, right? In a two-week period, we did not see... Yeah, in two weeks, this didn't see what we expected to see or what I expected to see. Taub says he had, he had no expectations and Ludwig says he has no expectations. But in two weeks, this confused us. Let's see what happens in a longer period of time. That would be the natural thing to do. In fact, when we started NUSI uh, in order to get funding for our trials from uh, the Laura and John Arnold Foundation that was backing us, we had to go through the literature that might have addressed this issue. We basically had to do, you know, prior art. And we went through 80 odd studies that had been published from about the 1940s onward. And we rejected any study that was less than three weeks long because we decided that three weeks didn't tell us anything meaningful about what's happening long term. And these are long term chronic effects we're studying. In you know, field like this, there's just a lot of ways to do it. So for instance, um, the assumption, my assumption, is that uh, carbohydrates are the trigger of this obese phenotype that we're seeing. So if you remove the carbohydrates, people mobilize fat and they oxidize it for fuel. So you could get people to lose weight without starving them. So we know that there are metabolic, metabolic compensations to starvation. That's always been obvious as long as people have gone through famines. But when you're feeding a high-calorie, carbohydrate-restricted diet, a keto diet, you shouldn't see those metabolic compensations. So that would be a prediction. If we get weight loss on two different diets, one keto, minimizing insulin, and one not minimizing insulin but requiring calorie restriction, <clears throat> the one that doesn't minimize insulin, you should see metabolic compensations of the diet. They, they should, it should be harder to sustain the weight loss, and you should have to stay calorie restricted and compared to the keto weight loss. 
energy expenditure should be greater on keto because you're not seeing the metabolic the body isn't starved it's getting enough fuel as much fuel as it wants you should so uh, a trial like that ideally i mean you could probably if designed correctly you could probably do that study in a couple you know a couple months of well, you have to get the significant weight loss on both diets. So you have to establish that both diets, yeah, you have to get significant weight loss on both diets first. So you would have to run people in, get the weight off of them, like say 15 or 20% of their excess weight. If it's a 300 pounder, I'd want to get them down to around 250. And at 250, I'm going to predict that if it's a he did it on a keto, he or she did it on a ketogenic diet, their energy expenditure and their calorie intake is going to be higher than somebody who goes from 300 to 250 by restricting calories on any, you know, di non-ketogenic diet. So you, you can start thinking of, again, what you would expect to see and then the predictions you would have to make and how long it would take. The argument we make is that we're not just talking about what's the best diet for weight loss, right? because there's been so much talk about that over the years. People talk about the diet wars. It's like all these fad diet guys think there's some ideal diet for weight loss, and they want you to do their diet, and their diet is better than, you know, the. so my diet is better than Jason Fung's version of the diet, which is better than David Ludwig's, which is all the way down to Dean Ornish and Pritikin. They trivialize it, you know, because remember, people can lose weight on any diet in which they eat less, and the diet that works is one that they'll sustain. That's what they believe. So this is all sort of airy-fairy bullshit. The NIH, even this Kevin Hall and a fellow named Yanni Friedhoff in Canada wrote a paper saying we should never do diet studies again, never do comparative diet studies again, because we know the answer. The flip side is we're talking about the fundamental cause of obesity and diabetes, which are the, you know, kill far more people even now than COVID does, kill them prematurely. So these are like vitally important things to do. And yeah, they're expensive studies, but can you think of anything more important than establishing beyond reasonable doubt what the mechanism and the agent of obesity is? So type 2 diabetes as well and fixing that, or at least beginning to argue, to unanimously argue to fix it. And what if we spend a billion dollars a day? A billion dollars would be one day's worth of direct medical costs of obesity and diabetes in this country. And that would get most of these studies done. 100%. Yeah, and I think, again, I think especially within our current challenge of our times with the COVID-19, again, with the comorbidities of a serious presentation, highly, highly associated with obesity, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, it's not even... It, it, it's, I think, especially salient, I think to more and more people in our community, it is interesting where we don't have more of these conversations about really understanding the, the primal root causes, right? Because it is, it is funny that while we purportedly understand biochemistry, human evolution, physiology much better than ever, we have more money than ever, we have all sorts of food manufacturing more than ever, but yet <laughs> all the chronic disease metrics of cardiovascular disease risk, obesity, diabetes, prediabetes, metabolic syndrome, right? That, that, that's all-time highs. We're the weakest population of humans in like the history of humans if you look at it on those markers. So it is, I think, one of these things where people don't under realize that like the breadth of cost that 
these chronic conditions actually underlie. Yeah, well, and even if they realize that they, 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 the phrase you hear all the time is these are multifactorial complex conditions. And you see uh, the British uh, National Health Service, maybe one of the Brit or the Medical Research Council put out a few years ago a report on obesity and they had their obesity map and it was all the, you know, this unbelievably complex spider web of factors that contribute to obesity and all of which have to be fixed. So, right, if it's so complex and multifactorial, you can't, it, anyone who thinks they could fix it with an easy solution is insane. And, and surely the sociological and, and, and issues involved with this and socioeconomic issues involved with this are complex and may never be properly tackled or may not be tackleable. But, and here's the thing, even that British chart all this infinitely complex web all contributed on one level to either increasing intake or decreasing expenditure. That was their ultimate causal factors. And everything else contributed to those. And then the question is, can you, can you get people to care that that could be wrong? Not only, and I would, it's not that it could be wrong, but it's nonsensical to talk about it like that. Yeah, I mean, just reflect on the point. I mean, it might very well be multifactorial, which I think a lot of problems are just complicated, but doesn't mean that there's a prioritization of weights, right? Like, you can definitely say, hey, this variable is a dominant variable in the outcome whether it's a carbohydrate insulin model is like a dominant weight. There might be other second order, third order variables that, that the needle, but to say, oh, it's multifactorial, it's too complicated, we shouldn't do any studies on this is like giving up, right? Like that's like very anti-product. That's Occam's razor. If you start with a complex explanation, you'll never make progress. So you start with the simplest possible explanation, you test it. If it doesn't survive the test, then you complicate it a little bit to see what's necessary to, you know, that the hypothesize that they would survive a test and you go from there. You might end up with a multifactorial complex explanation, but you can't start off that way. And then ultimately it is simple because ultimately their explanation is people eat too much, <laughs> you know, and maybe if they exercise more, that would balance out what they eat, but ultimately they just eat too much. And that's why some of us suffer from obesity and others don't. And that, that's crazy. You know, I, there's a fellow who's uh, doing an article on me for a major magazine. He's really good. He's got a background in uh, history of science and uh, I like him and he's smart, but he, he also likes uh, Kevin Hall at NIH and they considered all of, and he said, you know, I don't want to take a side when I write this up. And I said, well, one of my fundamental arguments is this whole energy balance idea is tautological. It's meaningless. You know, that people say obesity is caused by taking more energy than you expend. That's a positive energy balance causes obesity. And the argument I'm making is, well, uh, obesity is, or gaining fat is a positive energy balance, right? We know energy and mass are equivalent. So if you're getting fatter, your energy contained in your body is increasing. That's a positive energy balance. You can't say it's caused by a positive energy balance. It's like saying, uh, you know, I got, uh, I made more money last week because I had a positive money balance. You're saying the same thing in two different ways. That's a tautology. It's meaning, it's fundamentally meaningless. Yep. And I said to him, so that's not something you cannot take a side on. I'm either right or I'm wrong. <laughs> 
Okay, and I realize that nobody, very, maybe 10 people in the past 100 years have made this argument publicly, and I document them in my book. But that doesn't, if I'm wrong, then I'm wrong. It's just, it's not a, it's not open for debate. Yeah. There is some underlying mechanism that explains this, right? Someone is right, right? Like there is an explanation. There is. There is. There is a right answer. Yeah, there's true and false, right? It's yeah. right answer, wrong answer. So anyway, that that's the kind of thing you um you know, it's a crazy world. I have to say that being in this position where I'm like a, a you know, an aging science journalist trying to make arguments like this is really kind of first way to go through life. I have to say it's you know. No, I mean I think we need more incisive voices who. Uh, can call bullshit and I think just also understand some like logical tautologies or fallacies, right? It is interesting. It, yeah, basically like it's a circular argument that obesity is caused by positive energy surplus. It's just like it's like it's a, it's like the classic, you know, logic one on one textbook. That's a logical tautology. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an elegant explanation for that's it. our that is the that's Newton's laws of obesity research. And that is the bedrock belief system of obesity system. You get fatter because you're getting fatter, in effect. Yeah. There's not many things you can take away from that a tautology, right, by, by kind of definition. It's like it's a self-referring definition. So it's hard to even use this from an engineering or applications perspective because there's not much you can recommend from that. Yeah. Right. I mean, you could you could argue. Well, again, the the recommendation is people should eat less and exercise more, right? So we can balance out the. But we know that doesn't work. So even even if that was something meaningful to take away from it, you know, you hypothesize there's somehow causality here in the intake and expenditure. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, maybe the yeah. I mean, I think I think we covered good ground there, and hopefully. For folks who want to dive more into the literature, the case for keto is out now and it's, uh, you know, getting good reviews and you can dive into more of the research and literature there. But maybe to just, you know, change up topics as we wrap up here. Any other interesting problems that you're kind of seeing? Obviously, a lot has happened in 2020. Obviously, the month of January, very interesting as well in 2021. You know, obviously not to move off of kind of the, the keto space, but, you know, when you're applying your lens on different problems, anything that you see as interesting, people are just completely missing the boat, whether it's related to health, related to just like just general social cultural observations, anything. Yeah, I, I'm, you know, one of the reasons I'm willing to go out on various limbs in this subject is because I know it so well and I know the history so well and anything else, almost by definition, I'm going to be guessing. And then I'm just, you know, I the, the idea is to try and generate signals, not more noise. And the problem with this democratization of information is that you get this enormous amount of noise generated. And that worries me. So that's that's the problem. How do you solve, you know, if I wrote good calories, bad calories today, I'm not sure anyone pays attention. Just like if I was thinking about this the other day, um, you know, the idea when uh, the Russians or whoever was released Clinton's emails, right? That wasn't that different than what Nixon wanted his crooks to do when they broke into the Democratic National you know, Headquarters Commission at the Watergate, right? It was like, break into the Democrats' office and see what we find. And in this case, somebody broke into the Democratic candidates' emails and released them publicly, and it had virtually no effect. I mean, a huge repercussions, but if that had, you know, nobody... 
does anybody care anymore? When any everyone has a voice, everyone can pick their experts. You know, if maybe you listen to the read the New York Times, maybe you read, you know, it's Fox News or even what's the other one? OAS, OAS, OAN, the, the super right wing yeah. one. Yeah, I mean, I have friends whose intelligence I like and respect, or liked and respected, who listen to OAN because it fits their worldview. So that kind of thing worries me. You know, I what I do, I take really seriously. But had I started now instead of 12 years ago, then would it have just been written off as fake news? Am I just, uh, you know, one of, uh, and I, I don't know. And that, that's, that's, that's the issue that keeps me up uh, at night. Yeah, I mean, I, I like how you have a meta commentary on the question, which I think is actually an interesting point. But maybe I'm overly optimistic. I, I do really believe that quality rises from the chaff. I feel like there is some sense making and truth making. And I think that the truth works because it like actually has practical application in the real world, right? If your description of the world is more effective for you to navigate and manipulate the environment, then you should theoretically be more fit and successful to uh, b bestow that like that mindset across the, the, your artist community, our population. So maybe I'm overly optimistic there, where truth will overcome the noise. Well, and I, you know, I tend to agree with you. I mean, and and on my <laughs> better days, I'm optimistic also, although. Um, I don't come from a race that optimism, you know, suited all that well. The, uh, yeah, I, and what's certainly in diet and nutrition, I mean, that's the argument. It's sort of like, look, you know, I, the, everything the, my latest books have done, and they, the reason this book is called The Case for Keto, right, is I'm trying to get doctors to understand why their colleagues have bought into this, why people they know and respect and went to med school with are now doing something that US News and World Reports experts think is the least healthy diet imaginable, and why they're prescribing it to their patients. And once they get there, then they can start thinking, you know, they could try it themselves or try it on their patients. And if their patients get healthier, then that's all you need to know. You know, what whether I'm right or Kevin Hall's right or you know, pick your, doesn't really matter. It's not the person who's right. It's just like that there is some scientific fact that, of how our physiology works and like who is describing it better, right? Like Newton didn't invent Newton's laws. He's describing it mathematically in, in, in the first time in a really co cohesive way, right? With lines of relativity. And it's like, yeah, it's not, it's not about the personal or the ego, right? It's just like who's translating and, and describing the model better ultimately. Right. And then, like I said, there is this other issue, whereas if you really understand the mechanism, then you can fix it. You know, because we understood Newton's laws and we could build spaceships and send them to, the, you know, rocket ships and send them to the moon and everything else goes from there. If you don't understand it, you never get off the ground. So in an ideal world, that'll take longer because that's that that human opinions are involved, whereas you eat keto and get healthy. Who cares what other people think? Yeah. I think that's where yeah, I think that the rubber hitting the road, right, with maybe because I come from a computer science or physics background, it's like you really know when the rubber hits the road. Like with human nutrition, because our bodies are so damn resilient, you can get away with like poisoning your body with sugar or whatnot. And you like don't really know, right? Because it's quote unquote super multi. Well, there's no immediate feedback. Yeah. You know, you're doing the damage over decades. So. Yeah. Well, I was just saying like, you know, I think we can keep going for another hour, but I do want to be thoughtful of time here. So. What's in, you know, what's in store for you in 2021? Where do people find you? You know, 
where do people you know buy the book all of that good stuff okay well the book is available everywhere if your local bookstore is open you know buy it there otherwise amazon and uh yeah i blog well i don't blog anymore so i have a uh, website garytalbs.com and I'm, I'm on twitter but if i probably shouldn't be <laughs> the books are important i have a op-ed when are you uh, when is this being posted this will be live in two weeks. Oh, okay. So I will have had an op-ed, an essay in the Wall Street Journal uh, that's coming out tomorrow on keto and its relationship to the environment. So, uh, but they buy the books. You get it helps. So the, one of the arguments I make in this is so there's a common conversion experience in this field, which is kind of interesting if you think about it. You're asking people to completely shift their belief systems. And the reason we could do it in diet is because you can actually try the diet. So you could be living many, as many of us did, you know, eating sort of conventionally healthy diets and getting fatter and going to the gym every day and getting fatter or getting more diabetic, losing control of your blood sugar. And then you, so you know that the conventional wisdom isn't helping you. And then you switch and you try a low carb, high fat ketogenic diet and boom, suddenly you're healthy. You know, it's funny. I was, I was interviewing a, a, researcher at Tufts the other day who I had been put to because I had been told that he thinks entirely differently than I do. And he runs a weight loss program there. And when I asked him how he personally lost weight, he said, well, 20 years ago, I tried Atkins and the fat melted away. <laughs> and it was like, wait a minute, I was told to talk to you because you're supposed to disagree with me. Right. But anyway, the point is you can have that conversion experience. You can, you know what the conventional wisdom is doing for you. And then you can switch your diet and get healthy and know that what you've been told is no longer relevant to you. And part of that conversion is to understand what happened to you. Like, why is it when I don't eat carbs and replace those calories with fat, I get so healthy? And that requires, you know, the doctors all talked about going down the rabbit hole. That's the cliche you hear all the time. I went down the rabbit hole, which means basically I got on the internet and I read the books. And it just helps to read the books, to really understand. Also, so if you get, you know, two years from now, somebody else goes like, I'm, I'm doing the celery diet and I really want to, I think you should try it you'll have a better understanding of your own physiology and why what you're doing already might work. Yeah, well said. And I think that's, you know, 100% in line with just, I think, just how we all should be living, which is take some self-responsibility, self-experiment, learn more about yourself and the world around you, right? And, you know, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But if it does, it, it might be life-changing. So Yeah, and that ultimately, that self-experiment part is, is another big part of this. You know, I think as journalists, what I accomplished and with Nina Teicholtz and her book, Big Fat Surprises, we managed to assemble enough evidence to convince people that these eating this way won't kill them, that saturated fat is not the problem. Butter and bacon are not going to give them the heart attacks or the colon cancer that I worried about when I started doing this. So yeah, experiment, try it. That's the idea, but do it right. Don't do it half-assed. Don't do what you think. Don't do the sort of diet version of this NIH experiment, you know, do it right. Do it for long enough that you really have some sense of how your body is responding. And then, you know, who cares what other people think? And then as you go along, you'll do experiments along the way, like 
you know, if you're still sleeping badly or you've got sinus issues at night or headaches, you can start thinking in terms of like, could this be diet related? And, or, you know, the, my, the rabbit hole opens up, right? And that's where like that rabbit hole goes. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. it's like once you get that mindset of self-experimenting and learning about yourself, I think the, the kind of the whole purview of what you think you can kind of play around and experiment and, and control really opens up that aperture. So Gary, thanks so much. It's an honor again to, to have you on the program and great to great to chat here. So we'll stay tuned. I'm sure there will be other experiments and, and books to follow up on. So uh, thanks so much. Okay, Jeffrey, thank you for having me. Hey, this is Jeff Wu from HVMN here. If you like this podcast, check out my new favorite podcasting app called Shuffle App. Use Shuffle to find your favorite clip from this episode, post on Twitter and Instagram, and tag us at HVMN. And the best clip will win a free variety pack of our brand new keto food bars. They're great, super keto compliant, certified organic, tastes delicious. Check out Keto Food Bars and check out Shuffle.